You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and look through their incredible collection for your selection. Download and start listening on your phone, computer, or tablet. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Hi, Monster Talkers. We're working on a new site design and could use a little help. I've commissioned some very cool art and have several new projects in the works, but it'll take a while to save up enough money to pay for those. If you'd like to help speed up that process, I've set up a GoFundMe account with an explanation of what the money will be used for. I created a shortcut to it. Go to bit.ly forward slash GoFundMonsterTalk. That's bit. Dot ly forward slash GoFundMonsterTalk. The GoFundMonsterTalk part is all lowercase with no spaces, and I'll also put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you in advance for any support you can give us. We really appreciate it, and it will get our work out faster, which I'm very excited about. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. The first time I saw Peter Laws, it was on Twitter, and I thought he looked exactly like Jesse Custer from the comic book and now TV show, Preacher. Then I saw that he was a preacher and deeply into horror culture. And that really got my attention. 
And then I read his book, The Frighteners, and I found it to be a fascinating story about his own journey as a person who loves horror, the macabre, and the sort of dark cultural milieu that we do here on Monster Talk. And at the same time, he's an ordained minister. So I just, I had to talk with him. The Frighteners has some really wonderful chapters about the ways that the cultural content that fascinates us all can be therapeutic. When I read this book, and certainly when we did the interview, the idea that people couldn't differentiate between fact and fiction, between movies and video games compared to the real-world horrors, wasn't a driving factor. Yet, I'm increasingly concerned that we're entering an age where people searching for an explanation for why people do bad things will turn up easy answers in horror movies, video games, and the music of our culture. These things are not the problem. And not only are they not the problem, but for many of us, they're the tools that help us deal with and cope with the real horrors that surround us all the time. So I didn't mean to be topical, but as I release this episode, I accidentally am. And that's all I have to say about that. So let's just get on to the Monster Talk. Today, we're welcoming Peter Laws. Should I say Peter Laws or Reverend Peter Laws, or do you care? Oh, no, just, just, just stick with the master. No, no, Peter Laws will do for <laughs> Our Lord and Master, Peter Laws. Yeah. <laughs> so today, we welcome Peter Laws to Monster Talk. Peter's hey. uh, sort of bullet list of adjectives from his website says he's a... They state that he's an author, a journalist, a speaker, a church minister, a YouTube presenter, a film critic, and a weirdo. I, yeah. do, I follow him on Twitter, so I, I concur. Um, his his Matt Hunter series concerns a former minister turned sociologist, turned crime consultant for cases containing ritual and cult elements. And we'll put a link to Peter's author's pages in our show notes. But today we're here to talk about his 2018 book, The Frighteners, which is not a weirdly delayed tie-in to the Peter Jackson film, but is rather a thoughtful and insightful meditation on the various stigma that surround being a fan or enthusiast of horror, gore, terror, and the macabre. Is that fair? That's a great way of putting it, yeah. Excellent. So welcome to Monster Talk, Peter Laws. Hey! Welcome. Yeah. I've got a question. So, so Peter, you're a church minister and yeah. also a, a horror writer. Yes. So uh, d- does this interest and in, in your, your day job uh, does that conflict with your beliefs yeah, at all? Is it a conflict not, of interest? Yeah, not in my mind. In my mind, it makes absolute sense to combine those two things. But I definitely recognize that for some people, it's just a complete disconnect because they assume that, you know, if you're to be a, a Christian person or a religious person in general, that that means you have to kind of err on the side of light and happiness and goodness all the time. And so, therefore, to be interested in the morbid and macabre just simply wouldn't work and wouldn't make sense. But for me, I, I don't view life like that. I don't view religious religion or spirituality like that. I think um, any worldview is supposed to take into account both sides of life and sometimes life is absolutely fantastic and full of light and sometimes it is like sickeningly horrible with darkness and i'm not the type of person who wants to run away from the darkness and in fact to be honest um it was the darkness that really got me interested in spirituality in the first place i um remember as a young as a young kid i was i was very anti-church growing up i I was in a band at one point called um, Creatures of the Night, and we wrote songs about, you know, spit on the Bible and all the sort of classic stuff. And, you know, <laughs> you know Satan is cool. <laughs> the, the, sort of the, the typical stuff and, and God's a waste of space and all that. Um, and uh, I, 
I, I really was not interested in organized religion, particularly Christianity, because I was, I was anti that. Um, I, I just figured they were going to try and turn me into a sort of Stepford wife type thing, you know, a um, Stepford child. However, it was, it was watching horror films, films like, you know, The Exorcist or other things like that, which I know that other Christians um, had said were blasphemous and shouldn't be allowed to be seen. Um, but for me, they were the things that kind of re-enchanted my sort of jaded worldview um, and started making me think, oh my word, wouldn't it be interesting if the world was more epic and it had all of these things in it? So ironically, um, horror was my doorway into what I'm doing now. And so to suggest that, therefore, they don't work together just doesn't make sense to me. I think they're, they're combined. Well, that is so interesting because, uh, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, we're going to talk about reenchantment later on in this chat. But the uh, okay. the one of the things that always surprised me growing up um, in the sort of conservative biblical literalism that I did is how fearful so many people in our congregation were of these elements, like of demonic music and demonic games. Yeah. I grew up during the Satanic Panic. And oh. and it just didn't seem to coincide very well with the scripture because it seemed to me that the Bible was saying if you, you know, follow these things, if you, you know, invoke Christ, he'll give you the power to, you know, cast these demons out or protect you from evil. That if, if they truly had faith that they shouldn't be afraid of these things because they've already been granted yeah. victory. It just seemed it seemed problematic to me. Mm-hmm. No, I, I absolutely agree, and and I I, I kind of lose count of the amount of Christians that I meet, fellow Christians who 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 are way more scared of life than I am. Um, I mean, I uh, a couple of weeks ago I interviewed a, a, a Satanist, a, a guy who runs the Satanist, well, the, the temple of um, the Satanic temple, the Satanic uh, temple, which is the yeah. non-theistic. Yeah, right, right. Is it really, yeah. Peter Gilmore? So, no, Lucian Greaves. Yeah, um, oh, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. He's a really he's a really interesting guy. Has some very I think. Um, reasonable things to say about religion and things like that but if i if i mention that to my some of my christian friends they're like what are you doing you know you are you are putting yourself at risk whereas i i just see it as you know fellow human beings trying to kind of figure out what the heck is this this planet is all about and the universe Mm -hmm. and and so i'm always interested in other people's opinions so yeah i i think it all depends on your worldview a worldview that has a very well you could call it an evangelical worldview which splits the world into sacred and secular is naturally going to be scared of those things that are not in the religious camp, even if it's He-Man. I remember He-Man was seen as sort of a doorway into satanic worlds and stuff. However, if you have, a, I think, a more biblical worldview, which is to see all of life as this bundle of, of like spiritual uh, spirituality and science and every, everything's just all mixed up together, then you're quite happy to sort of walk through fields that maybe others wouldn't walk through because it's all about exploration and kind of journeying with other people. So yeah, I don't have a problem with it, but I have had, pe- I have had Christians who I've gone on their radio shows, for example, to be interviewed by them. And I found out that they have asked for special prayer because I was there because they assume that I have got some sort of demon with me because I'm, because <laughs> I and like horror attached movies. to them. Well, they, I, they probably, yeah, exactly. yeah, they see it as being, in, you should be get thee behind me, Satan, not get thee next to me and let's oh. have a cup of tea and discuss this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and don't get me wrong, I, I, I mean, a lot, a lot of sort of um, 
the, the, the problems that maybe some Christians can have might be to do with me liking horror, but I'm also a pretty kind of a liberal Christian as well. And so those things I think would even, would be even worse, you know, that, that I don't have a problem with people who are gay, for example, that would, um, that would, would send alarm bells to, to many of my sort of fellow Christians. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's not an easy road to, to, to walk, but it's an interesting one. Yeah. I grew up in Australia, and uh, mm. if, if you can't tell, and uh, even though Australia is very secular, I mean, we certainly do have Bible Belt-like areas in, in parts of Queensland. So there are certainly, I think Australia would consider, or lots of Australians would consider the country to be Christian mostly. Yeah. Um, but even still, I, I think for the most part it's secular, and I certainly grew up secular. But there was this negativity around things like Ouija boards uh, and ghosts and uh, psychics. And it was a kind of thing that you just didn't traffic with. I remember having a fascination with Ouija boards when I was a kid. And mm. there were just lots of uh, friends who were very anti that. And their parents were certainly very anti that, And even though they weren't religious. So you just had this sense that these things are bad. You don't, don't, uh, don't traffic yeah. with them, uh, even if you, you weren't religious. No, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I think part of it has to do with um, our personalities. And there's, a, there's an author I really uh, found helpful called Lynn Thatcher, who's a Christian author, who who wrote a book ages ago, which was called The Magic Eight Ball Test. And it was about a kind of Christian support of Halloween. And he was, very, you know, not many people would uh, in the Christian world would support Halloween, but he did. And, and I also do. And I remember in his book, he talked about um, people having the spooky gene which I really like this phrase. And it was just simply that some people have this gene in them, something in them that simply gets excited by mystery and excited by spookiness and scariness. And other people completely don't. So for us sitting here and we say, you know, we love monsters, we love scary things. There are some people who look at us and just think, I, I do not understand the attraction in that. It's completely beyond me. It's yeah. simply because they don't have that personality type. But sadly, they might interpret that as there is something wrong with us because we like these things. I, I just don't think that's the case. Or we're weird at the very least. <laughs> well, at the very least, or dangerous at the worst. Yeah, I, I actually, yeah. that was the, the way I wanted to kick this questioning off, was talking about the sort of transgressive and taboo nature of some of this kind of fiction and these properties, these sort of intellectual properties. But at the same time, you know, we're all looking for our tribe and and for in some yeah. sense like you you can you know if you're lucky you can find your community somewhere for some people it's church for some people they find mm -hmm. it at school cliques of friends you know we we love to categorize things but the, yeah. the, the the horror fans you know sometimes people like really lean into it and signal and they put tattoos on and they wear horror shirts and yeah. and then there's people like me who i i love this stuff but if you just saw me at the mall you might not know it right i mean um, yeah. Unless you were carrying around your bag, my monster bag, Bigfoot patches. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting you say that, Blake, because um, I'm, I'm similar. That I, I mean, I'm very open about my love of, of horror and things, but I'm not. I'm not the type of guy who will say, you know, walk around that has a massive T-shirt that has the poster from Halloween or something on it. However, I will very happily wear a wear a T-shirt that has maybe like Silver Shamrock, which is the uh, the company that make the 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 scary. Um, masks from halloween three that other halloween um fans would spot because nice. they're geeks like me but uh -huh. the rest of the world wouldn't and that's not about uh -huh. being ashamed of it it's just 
Yeah. Well, you're I, taking I, it to the next I, level. I, that's like a horror dog whistle. That's nice. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's rooting out the true fans. <laughs> there's some, something to be said to, to not be too overt too. I mean, you can, you know, wear brands and it, something screams Hugo Boss or Nike or whatever. Yeah. And other people are more understated about it. And that's cool. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> Although when I was a teenager, I remember I did buy, I don't know if you remember, but in Britain, there, were, there, was, a, there was a period where you could buy these really cool t-shirts that had like latex axes hanging out of the front, no. uh, like so three-dimensional no. axes with blood spurting all over the place. And I did buy one of those. And um, once I, I think I was about 15 and, and I, or 14, and I'd come out of seeing Poltergeist 2, or, or it was one of the Poltergeist films, and I ran into the street and sort of fell on the ground screaming, <laughs> pretending that I'm <laughs> hit with an axe. And then this I have never heard of those t-shirts. They were awesome. And an elderly couple came up to me and um, were like, oh, my goodness, are you okay? <laughs> and I felt so terrible, so I didn't do that again. It, it is an, a, an interesting fashion accent. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> did you want it. Did, do you? <laughs> So the transgressive nature of this kind of horror, that seems to be one of the themes you're kind of looking at is why yeah. why do people – uh, find this problematic, and why do some people like that it's problematic? You know, why why do some people mm -hmm. it, yeah. does it does it become part of their you know I'm a little bit different from you guys you know uh, identity? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think a lot of creative people are drawn to this sort of thing, and um, I mean, you guys, uh, you know, you may well be creative people, and so you sound like you are, and so for you, if you see a sort of blank page. You aren't threatened by that, or at least I'm, I, when I see a blank page, I'm not threatened by that. I'm actually interested to see, oh, the possibilities of what could go on that page. So if I'm, say, living in a community, like when I was growing up, um, and I have one set of people who are saying, let's say Christians, saying, no, the world is like this, and it's completely marked off, and this is the, this is the pen in which you must be, um, that to me just cut off excitement from my life. Because I want the page to be big and I want the page to have possibility. And so what I found is um, when I was walking home from school and somebody would say, there's the house on the corner. Did you know that that's haunted? Um, it just it just made my life way more epic and more interesting. And even even if it's even if like hauntings didn't exist, just the chance that they existed um, or just the excitement of those sorts of stories were great. So, yeah, so I'm the sort of person, because I'm creative, I want to look at a spooky house and say, oh, my word, that's where the old lady comes back and, you know, wails at night. Um, that that just makes my life more interesting. But for some people, they just they want their page to be locked down and to be predictable. And mm -hmm. that's just not me or you, I guess. So you're an enthusiast of horror and uh, mm. the macabre, and I'm curious about your influences. What are some of your influences and, and interests? My influences? I mean, I, I'd say so. Growing up, I I was predictably, I mean, I was very into Stephen King as, as a kid, and um, and I, I also started reading things like, you know, Interview with a Vampire and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. And I used to read those things. Um, I used to make sure I would read those at nighttime with all the lights off. And I'd sit as a sort of kid on my windowsill. And um, so I would read it by the light of the lamp that was outside the street lamp because it would make it more spooky. And so I was I was I was really interested in all those sorts of things. And I think those sorts of uh, tales did a good 
good job of enchanting my world. Uh, but also uh, true life tales of the paranormal or aliens or um, anything Fortean. I, I, that was my favorite section of the library. And I would go down there because, again, I potentially feel claustrophobic in my hometown thinking, oh, is this all there is to life? I like it, but is there more? And, that, and the unexplained opened up a whole new universe, which wasn't necessarily another country that I maybe I'll move to New York one day and I'll be able to live an interesting life. It was like, oh, my word, if there's such a thing as, say, ghosts, um, that could happen in my town. Do you know what I mean? So it kind of brought a whole world to me. So, yeah, I think I was influenced by some of the classics and, and, and films as well. You know, I, I'm a big horror film. Well, I'm a big film fan, but I love I love horror films. So all of that stuff in, informed my interest, I think. Well, one of the interesting sort of I don't I hate to call it a dichotomy, but it sort of is in this sort of genre fandom is the horror versus true crime. And it, it seems like mm. both have really become super popular in the past few years. Uh, yeah. But as you point out in your book, um, y- you can really enjoy horror and at the same time, like really abhor violence. But why does that distinction matter? Do you think? Um, what the, the distinction that you don't like real violence? No, I guess the distinction between horror and true crime. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. I would I would hope that that no, none of our listeners really <laughs> uh, uh, love real violence, but 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 there yeah. is something weird about that. I mean, I mean, like in my house, I love horror. My wife loves horror, but she loves true crime, and I'm always like unsettled by true crime because uh, you know it's true, true crime. I mean, that that doesn't mean I haven't it read happens. extensively, but it, it's like I feel a lot of empathy for the victims. And I feel yeah. a personal distaste for being too enthusiastic about the killers. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, I, I, I see where you're coming from because, I mean, my, my book, The Frighteners, does explore all sorts of different things from monsters and ghosts and, and, and whatever. And there is a section on um, true crime and serial killing and why people are fascinated by that. And particularly looking at the murderabilia industry, which I hadn't quite appreciated how big this was. Um, but, Say uh, that again. Murderabilia. Murderabilia, yeah. It's basically a sort of growing market where um, people who are interested in this stuff will buy trinkets and souvenirs from the world's most savage killers. So, um, right. for example, I had, a, I had a, a lock of Charles Manson's hair in my hand and uh, a, a strand of that each cost 40, 40 pounds to buy. And you could put it in a vial and put it around your neck. This was from a shop in, in Britain in a place called York. But you can buy a half-eaten burrito from Charles Manson for about $800. <laughs> there's, there's loads of stuff. You can buy, you, you can, you can um, buy, there's a killer called, um, uh, I can't remember his name, but BTK, uh, mm-hmm. buying buy torture kill. He's a horrible mm-hmm. guy. And um, you can, people sort of dig, go to his crime scenes and dig up the soil and put that into bags, and then people will buy those bags uh, so that they can have something close to them. Yeah, so for me, all of that stuff, and, and writing that chapter was almost like kind of a step beyond my comfort zone because that's that's real victims and um, and real people dying. However, I was I didn't want to write off people who find this stuff interesting as 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 freaks or that there's something wrong with them because I do think there's some quite complex psychology going on in why we are drawn to to people who are uh, uh, savage murderers i think it's quite an interesting thing we do and, and actually it's interesting what we do with killers in our society that you know you look at the um you look at the news and you know we wouldn't normally talk about things in supernatural terms uh you know if there's 
Donald Trump or Brexit or whatever. It's purely talked about in political terms. However, when you get a really savage killer which breaks all moral boundaries, um, you start to see supernatural language tripping into the, the discussion. And so people use terms like evil or they to use terms like monster or they start to describe, no longer do you describe the, the killer by their name. Um, you start to give them, you know, monikers like the Ripper or the Werewolf of wherever or the Vampire of Sacramento. Um, and it's, I think it's because these people just go so beyond what we can handle. And we think, oh, crap, those guys are human beings. They're part of, part of our tribe. We can't cope with this. Let's mythologize them and make them into monsters. And when we do, do that, there's a divide. And do you think part of that is a taboo, like we almost don't want to mention their names? I think it could be, but I also think it's 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 good for our psyche to dehumanize them, because mm -hmm. if we if we turn them into a almost like a sort of a fictional character, um, mm -hmm. then they they cease to become the guy next door. Right, we're separating ourselves from them. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, when you think about it. it if, if your neighbor, I mean, your neighbor, I don't know who they are, but your neighbor potentially could be this top type of person. That doesn't, that doesn't do a lot for social cohesion. <laughs> you know, that, that, there, that, there, was a, there was a stabbing at the, the house next door a few years ago. Two stabbings, right. actually. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Oops. Well, so well, maybe there, maybe you've got it right next to you then. But I think so, yeah. But, you know, if we were living in a world where we thought all of our fellow humans were potentially going to do this, it's just too much to cope with. So we turn them into we turn them into mythical monsters or we turn them into celebrities. Um, mm -hmm. yep. And cele celebrities are also not like human beings. Uh, you know, we, you know, I, let's say, I don't know, like some, somebody asked me the other day, would you like to meet William Shatner? Right. Uh, I don't mean he, he gave me the option. I, I said, if you ever could. And I, and I was like, I don't know if I could cope with meeting William Shatner because, like, I've been a fan of William Shatner since I was a little kid. And um, I, I don't know if I could handle meeting him as a real person. Um, so celebrities can be almost like unreal mythical beings to us. And, uh, you know, killers can be mythical beings as monsters. And sometimes those two become the same thing, a celebrity yeah. monster. Yeah, it does give well, you celebrities. Oh, yeah, I was going to say it gives. Well, it gives you a layer of abstraction. Like you can, it's a much more simple view to see them as a monster than to try to understand the complexities. Uh, much more simple. And and actually, what's interesting about the people who are really into true crime, and particularly women who are drawn and attracted to killers. Uh, I mean, you know, to me, uh, many people, it's like, what? What are you doing? But actually, for them, there is some really interesting and complex things going on in their psychology. In and a, a lot of women who actually start going out with some of these savage uh, murderers in prison. Um, they've, they've had a lot of abuse in the past from men, and um, they finally get an opportunity to have a relationship with a very dangerous man, but they are in total control. You know, they, 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 don't, they don't have to consummate the relationship. They can call it off at any time. And some of the interviews with some of these women have, have shown that they actually find that quite a, a rare opportunity for them to have a sense of power. So anyway, it's, it's much more complex than just you like watching people get killed. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. A lot more to it. <laughs> yeah. You talked about uh, murderabilia and death souvenirs and how that it actually goes back to this sort of cultural morbid fascination, which actually leans all the way back into the history of collecting uh, relics from martyrs and saints. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a really old thing. It's not some, 
new, we just started this in, you know, 1937 or anything. So, But it reminds me of this TV show. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's uh, something I caught maybe on Netflix uh, about a year ago. And it was, a, it was a scientist and he was going around trying to collect memorabilia from celebrities and famous historical people. Oh, okay. And then to do DNA testing uh, on the things that he'd purchased to see if they were authentic or not. And oh. I think he found, a, I don't know if it was Elvis's toenail or something. And I think he was looking for something from Hitler and ended up finding, a, I think, a, a, a uh, some hair from Eva Braun instead and and um, oh. found out that she – so it was actually from her and found out that she had uh, some Jewish background, um, you know, in, in oh. her, her her genetics. Uh, but so it was an interesting show, and I, I yeah. don't know – I can't remember the name of it. Maybe we can look it up and put it in the show notes. Editor's note, that show was called Dead Famous DNA. I thought you were going to say that he took all of these, like, bits and bobs from people and sort of knit them together in a laboratory and created this, like, uber celebrity monster. Oh, like a body parts thing. Yeah, <laughs> well, that, yeah. That's a, there's a show that hasn't been done. That, that's one yeah. for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. and, well, and we're talking about people who seek this out, but there's another interesting aspect to this. Uh, uh, there's a psychologist named Bruce Hood. Uh, mm-hmm. who has done these interesting experiments where he asked people if they would be willing to put on a sweater that was worn yeah. by a serial killer. And, they, and, and most, most people won't, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like it's got some sort of invisible psychological taint to it. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. And, and, and you see this uh, just with celebrities in general, um, but also with serial killers, um, murderers, because, you know, like uh, you can – if, if if I was to say to you, hey, guess what, guys? I've I've just got this um this glass that uh you know Justin Bieber or whoever you're into at the moment, um the Queen of England has just drunk out of this glass. Does anyone want to look at it? Um, <laughs> some people will go, yeah. Some people will even pay a great deal of money to own that glass, which is ridiculous, you know, because it's just a glass. But they feel like the physical contact has it's almost like sort of taken on magical properties, and so therefore we'll own this glass. And similarly with um. You know, if you have a, a like a Nazi helmet, or or yeah, like a, a jumper from sort of Ted Bundy, some people just wouldn't wouldn't put that on. My wife's interesting because she she sees things quite logically. She's a she's a lawyer, and she just will see the world in a fairly kind of logical fashion. And so, a little while ago, there was a a, a house that became available in London, and um, it was where a, a famous serial killer called Dennis Nielsen um, killed most, if not all, of his victims. And because of this, uh, you know, the, the price of this place was really, really low. Um, and we were talking about whether or not we would ever move there. And she said, well, I, I said, no way. Like, uh, again, my creative mind will create connections and will turn that into a kind of a horrible place to live where she was like, yeah, but it's like a hundred grand cheaper. Who cares? Like I say, brains. I can see both sides of the argument, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and, and sometimes you envy the straightforwardness of just looking and going, why, why, why be bothered by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you, have, if you have a mind that you know is inclined to be, uh, to be creeped out at night, for example. I mean, I'm, I know there are more rational people than me, but not in my circle of friends. You know, like I'm hyper rational, but that doesn't mean that at 2 a.m. if I go up the stairs in the basement, that incredibly effective uh, sort of 
effect of the stairs bouncing, the, the sound bouncing off. So it sounds like someone's coming yeah. up right behind you. That still creeps me out. I know there's nobody there. And it takes a, a, a serious act of will for me to just slowly go up the stairs at normal speed if it's late at night and I'm the only one awake, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so I don't, and, you know, there's nothing rational about it. It's just a, a very human thing to sort of, that sounds like someone's behind me. I got to yeah. go, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're chasing me. Someone's watching. In some ways, though, that's an interesting example, I think, because in some ways, even if you're a pure rationalist, um, that you can understand why some people may not want to put themselves in those sorts of situations. Because like, let's say you do walk up the stairs one night and you turn around and you're by yourself and you do indeed see a figure in the corner pointing at you or whatever. You're going to be thrown into a, a very tricky situation there because you're either going to be, oh, maybe there is such a thing as ghosts after all. Or quite reasonably, you might be thinking, oh, crap, I'm going insane. Um, and I'm starting to have uh, hallucinations. And neither of those things are particularly welcome. <laughs> and so I can understand why people might not want to, they might not think in those terms, but it would be scary for I, both rational and unrational reasons. Sorry, go on. I think as as uh, skeptics, uh, we would often think, well, what's behind this? What What's actually going on? And because yes. uh, I've had, I've had some experiences like that, that I've written about in the past uh, where I saw an angel, in a cemetery quite late mm. at night. And uh, it, it turned out that it was just a, a uh, tomb of an angel and oh, okay. some lights from a street lamp that was just hitting it at the, the right or yes. the wrong angle, which made it look as though, uh, you know, I was seeing an angel that was pointing at me and, yeah. uh, you know, like the heavens were opening up and everything. And so, mm. yeah, I think the, the first thing that a lot of skeptics would, would think is not necessarily – you know, oh, is, is this a real angel? Um, you know, or to be yeah. scared, but to think, oh, you know, no, what's behind this? What's at the bottom of this? I want to solve this. Well, you both, you <laughs> yeah, both inspired that. me. I've, I've written a poem right now, just on the spot. Are you ready? Even, even a man who's pure of heart and has read the God delusion <laughs> can run in fear from ghostly steps when tricked by audio illusions. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Love it. <laughs> All right, poetry oh, over. Sorry. <laughs> Actually, you know what you just said about the um, looking for evidence and stuff is absolutely sensible. And um, funnily enough, uh, like uh, my mind thinks in a similar way. And so, you know, I will if if I'm presented with something that is supposedly supernatural. I mean, even though even though I'm a religious person, I don't like that word. But you know, I live my life in a kind of trying to emulate Jesus Christ, I suppose, to put it that way. His his character. Um, However, I, I still have quite a lot of cynicism, you know, and I'm still and I'm completely open to the possibility that there is simply is no such thing as God and the supernatural exists doesn't doesn't exist at all. So that could all be wrong. And I'm open to that being a possibility. But it means that, you know, so I can be sat with other people in, in a kind of church scenario and they start telling, say, stories and tales of miracles, for example. And my mind is doing the same thing that you were doing with that angel. It's like, hang on a minute, you know. There was there's a raft of rational explanations for these miracles that you're describing. Um, and the, I suppose the thing in me is like, I'm hoping, oh, tell me a story that I can't explain away. Right. So I'm, hope, I'm hoping to find that. But often the, there's an exp, I find an explanation. And um, hmm. yeah, but, but yeah, but for some people, they'll just go straight to that figure in the corner as a ghost. Um, oh yeah, and just yeah, accept that and and move on and uh, retell that story and yeah. and yeah. But I think with with skepticism too, you can uh, come up with 
possible explanations, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've solved the mystery or, or you know exactly mm-hmm. what's happened. You can really just look for, for natural explanations. Yeah. But uh, Monster Dog. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur (laughs) injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Monster Talks brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk, browse through their unmatched collection of titles, select one, and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. When I decided to run ads for Monster Talk, going with Audible was the easiest choice because I've used it for so long. I've been an Audible member since 2003, and I listen to it all the time. I use Audible to prepare for many episodes of this show. Many of the books that we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My pick for this month is The Frighteners by Peter Laws. We will be talking to Peter Laws this month about this fascinating look at the ways in which horror and spooky culture can be helpful or even therapeutic while still causing some people to give us disapproving stares. With Audible, I was able to listen to The Frighteners while I did chores, mowed the grass, and shopped for groceries. I can move seamlessly from my phone to my tablet to my computer, and Audible keeps up with my progress. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. But I'm happy to make Peter Law's book, The Frighteners, my suggestion for this month. To download your free audiobook while also supporting our show, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Monster talk. Yeah, so Peter, you, you said you don't have a church, you don't have a, a congregation at all. 
No, not at the moment. And and that 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 sounds like I'm dodgy or something. <laughs> like oh, no, I was. But, but I no, was so, going to say that you you need a church because. This would be so cool. I'd, I'd turn up for this kind of thing on a Sunday morning to talk about yeah. this in church. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, like I said, I mean, I still, I still do, um, like, sort of speak at churches and do that sort of thing. But I don't, I don't kind of run a church myself at the moment. I have had offers. I've had churches ask me, but, um, but I, I just really love exploring these weird and wonderful topics and and having the opportunity to write about them is 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 exciting. So, at least for the moment, uh, yeah. I'm kind of out in the wild and like it. <laughs> well, you've, you've got your, your 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 online flock. I mean, obviously. Like, <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, yes, my child. <laughs> I mean, you've got you've got YouTube channel. You obviously you're, you're you're being a lot of your content that I've looked at is is really it it's not really preachy, you know, but it, it's embracing these yeah. topics, but with a Christian angle to it, you know. So. Yeah, and and I'm all I'm always wary of. I'm always worried about people you know, feeling preached at, because that's just not my personality. And I think that's because up until, say, 21, I was I was very anti-Christian, uh, very against Christians. Uh, and and so I used to just think, you know, you're just interested in me as a kind of spiritual scalp. You don't care about me or my worldview. You just want to turn me into something and then move on to the next guy. Uh, and so I was very resistant of that. And, and, and therefore now I, I'm so cautious. Sometimes I'm overcautious. Uh, and and we'll sort of go, oh yeah, well this is what I think, but you know you don't have to think that or, or whatever. And um, some people just say, just just chill out, you know. I, I don't feel preached at, but sometimes I'm always worried that if you if there's a Christian in the room, there's like stereotypical baggage that you're out to change people. And I think that's because yeah. people have this spiritual secular divide thing going on. Like, so somebody from the spiritual camp is now talking to someone from the secular camp, let's say you guys. And so I, I, I need to try and convince you to move over to my side, whereas I'm much more interested in, in well, what's what's I don't see your side as a side. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I just feel like we're all <laughs> sounds like we should link hands and sing. But, you know, we're like all in this together. Um and and it's all exploration and, and every aspect, all other religions, no no religion at all has something to teach us. So, yeah, I think you get a certain amount of that too on the other side. So if you're an atheist or if you're a skeptic, a lot of people will immediately uh, just dismiss you as being negative and think, "Oh, yeah. you're going to mock me, or you're going to proselytize Absolutely. in your own way, you're going to poo-poo my beliefs, and yeah, and I don't want to be around you." <laughs> well, we're yeah, it's, it's just. This conversation is, uh, we're not following our questions at all, which is cool. We're actually, this feels much more like we're sitting in a coffee shop, and I, lo- I love it. But I do have a tangent. Oh, I'm drinking a cup of coffee. Well, there you go. Yeah. I, I am too. But I do have a tangent. This is an interesting opportunity for us because we, yeah, we don't have a lot of uh, um, uh, theologically trained clergy or anything on, on, on the show in general. But since you're already, uh, your book covers this topic of ghosts, and we talk about ghosts, and, and it fits right yeah. in. You. Uh, you've covered ghosts in one of your chapters and ghost hunting and um, Karen and I are very much into scientific skepticism as a, a methodology for sure. approaching these topics. But how does the clergy view this rising interest in ghosts? Uh, have you looked at any cross-denominational takes on this? I mean, do they view them as demonic yeah. or as some sort of paranatural thing or what, you know, what's going on with that as, as this interest rises in culture? How does the mm. church treat it or how do churches treat it? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, and I think you're right to suggest that there are differences denominationally with this, because um, some 
denominations uh, or sort of like streams of Christianity are just simply more open to this. So um, you get your, uh, say, Catholics, for example, who, you know, in their worldview, they have this sense of potentially having a kind of middle ground between heaven and hell, uh, purgatory. And the, the, there's there's already a built-in idea in their worldview that, you know, the dead kind of hang around in one way or another. And so you can find in some sort of Catholic writings that, um, you know, ghosts are a p- potentially fine and are potentially a part of our, our lives and that we can be connected with people. For example, they pray, they, they might pray um, to the dead or for the dead. And that's that's a, that's an aspect of their, their, their faith. However, um, if you hop over to the Protestant side of things, um, that's when things get a little bit more knee-jerk, in, in my opinion. So you get the like the strict evangelicals who will just say, there is absolutely no way that there can be a connection between us and the, the world of the dead, and therefore it's all demonic. And so any anybody who says, you know, oh, I, I think I've got a ghost in my house, no one in the evangelical world would be saying, um, oh, that could be a potentially benign spirit helping you out it would be like oh my goodness you are haunted in a conjuring type way get that demon out of there and that to me is is a shame and a bit naive because it's it's kind of ignoring a biblical precedent which where god in the bible and if you follow the bible you want to pay attention to this kind of sometimes blurs the line between life and death there are um there's there's a bit where um uh, King Saul uh, consults the witch of Endor in um, in the Old Testament and actually consults the the spirit of of, of Samuel and you know the, he's consulting someone from from the dead and the ghost appears. Some evangelicals say, well, clearly that was a demon, but the the text doesn't say that. There's bits with them, um, you know, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's hanging out with um, like uh, Moses and Elijah and. Uh, most Elijah, I think, um, in the Bible was kind of taken up into heaven. So we don't really know, you know, how he died or if he lived perpetually or whatever. Um, those are the different theories of, of the Bible. But Moses definitely died because it talks about him being buried. And yet there he is uh, on Earth, somehow hanging out with Jesus. And so even there, there's this precedent for there being some sort of gray, thin place between life and death. So so to me, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've said I'm cynical as well. So I'm very cynical about ghosts too. So people tell me a ghost story, I'm often going, oh my word, that sounds like a kind of hypnagogic hallucination. You are, you're always seeing a, a ghost at the end of your bed when you're falling asleep. I mean, come on. <laughs> so, so many times it's, I think it can be explained. Um, yeah. But, but uh, there are occasions, poltergeists and other things like that, which you think, oh, that's interesting. But some of the other denominations in Britain uh, are a bit more open to it. The Anglicans are, are a little bit more open um, here, the kind of Church of England. The Baptist Church that I'm part of, um, which, by the way, is nothing like the Southern Baptists. It's a completely different thing. You know, we've been ordaining women yes. for like 100 years. Whereas, Very different. You know, yeah, some of the Baptists in America, God hates f***s and all that jazz. It's just it's mm-hmm. horrible. Um but yeah, it's but this, the the fact is right. There is just there is an interest in this stuff, 
I can sit with I can sit with some, say somebody outside of the church or sit in a, a parent and toddler group when I was when I was a minister and we will sit chatting and I could tell them about oh we're doing an interesting course on the Bible or we're you know we're learning this we're learning that and they're like, oh right fair enough and then somebody in the group says hey somebody says that house down the road is haunted and their fight faces light up and go really tell me more somebody will say oh my word look. They're, they're sniffing the scent of demons and they're being drawn to the dark. And I'm like, no, they're human beings on a journey trying to figure out what's going on. And that is of interest to them and excites them. Mm-hmm. Why stamp on that? So many people have left Christianity, actually, because they feel they can't be a person who's interested in the paranormal or monsters because that's not allowed. And that's just that's just. That shouldn't be the case. Yeah, I think you can it's, both. It's, yeah. That's a, on both sides of that extreme. I know people who've left the church. They want to be Christian, but they've left because uh, theologically they have problems uh, with the way that their careers in evolutionary biology, for example, have conflicted yeah. with the church. And they, they want to be part of the group. They want to be part of the, the flock. Mm. And they, they maintain their faith, but they have a real hard time reconciling or finding a, a, demin, a denomination that, that like allows them to do their career. And, and, and Completely. Their, right. Yeah. But yeah. It just seems to me like, uh, in many ways, religion's intrinsically supernatural when you talk about a lot of concepts like uh, the Holy yeah. Ghost and mm-hmm. miracles and exorcisms and just uh, the stories in the Bible. So it is just yeah. strange. I guess people, uh, religion comes down to personal interpretations. Yeah, but you, but you, you did right to point that out, um, Karen. Like, it's to, to think of any place in the world that would be interested in the supernatural, you'd think it would be religious people. <laughs> and yet they're the ones who want to, sh- well, some of them want to shut this this sort of thing down. I think it's because they have, some of them have this view of, you know, the, the, the world is corrupt and trying to take people away from our tribe, which I don't think is a very biblical way of looking at the world. The, you know, Jesus was the great mingler. He was the great includer and would be connecting with people, you know, the sinners or the prostitutes or the tax collectors. That's not the image I see in some of the churches today. Um, and, yeah, I think you're dead right, Blake, that many people, sadly, I, I think they leave Christianity or leave the church, but particularly Christianity, because um, they, they think that they're rejecting Christianity. But what they're probably doing is rejecting a particular flavor of Christianity, and they think that's the only one that's out there. So they think, well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm an evolutionist. I can't accept Christianity if it's going to be a creationism thing. But for me, you can be both. You can be a theistic evolutionist or you can believe, or be, believe in evolution and just be open to the potential of a guiding principle behind that. But the way it's talked about in some churches, it's like you've got to believe in six days literal creation or you're not part of our tribe. And it's no surprise people are going to leave. Because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, there's lots of Christians who believe, I just clear this up because living in the South of the United States, uh, it is very, very, very common to run into literal biblical, yeah. uh, biblical literalists. But, but mm. uh, Catholicism in general has accepted evolution for a long time. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and they're fine. And so, so, so to think that you can't be a Christian. Uh, without yeah. literally believing uh, everything's exactly true, it's always been problematic for me. Uh, I think that's sensible. Yeah. All right. We so this is, wow. We've taken some interesting. We have, here. Yeah. We have, and we've got lots of questions still. So what? Uh, 
yeah, fire angle away. do you want to to go at at this point? Because, well, let me um, combine let me combine uh, a couple of questions into one. A uh, part of what you talk about in the book is what we call uh, dark tourism, which is going mm. to vampire sites or ghost themed sites or serial killer tours. Um, that sort and, and it also ties into what we call legend tripping, where you you want to go to these places where something allegedly happened. And it, yeah. you know, we've talked about it in terms of trying to recapture or get some sort of numinous experience or, mm-hmm. or re-enchantment. Um, uh, how do you yeah. see that? I mean, how, how are you, how do you treat that in the book and in, in your, and in, in your sort of journey? Um, I, I treat that in the sense that I think, um, I think the human brain craves information and novelty. And so, you know, it, we're, we're talking here now, but if, if like a, a a pink pet piglet ran through our room right now and started talking to us. We would, our brains would immediately be going, yeah, forget this podcast. There's a pig in my room. I would That's be thinking of Jody from the uh, Amityville horrors. What I'd be thinking. <laughs> oh, oh my word. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Unless of course you keep pigs and it's a natural thing for you. But uh, so our brain will naturally look for, for novel things and also new information. And so for me, um, the uh, topics that are about the morbid and the macabre and monsters, are, they, are, they are very novel um, to us because most of us are not living in scenarios in which sort of death and murder and monsters are part of our everyday life. I mean, for some people they are. Um, for example, I've, I've spoken to a woman who loved horror and then she went to become a soldier and then she saw real horror on the kind of on, – on, in real life. And then when she came back, she said, you know, I, I don't really feel the need to, to be involved in horror anymore. Not everyone responds that way, but she did. But for most of us, we're not at risk of being murdered every day. And we're not crashing our cars and seeing people dying every day. Therefore, if we drive our car along and we spot a car crash, um, our brain is going to go, oh, that's novel. And so we'll look. And our brain will also say, I think from an evolutionary perspective, a wise perspective, which would be, holy crap, that guy crashed. You need to quickly work out what he did or she did wrong um, so that we don't do the same thing. And that to me is completely natural. Um, Sadly, people will beat themselves up about this and think, oh, there's something wrong with me. I'm kind of getting off on this. Um, that might be just the, 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 maybe some sort of thrill at something that's that's novel. But I think that's a very normal thing to do. And so to think that we could build a society in which we're not drawn to this stuff is is crazy in my mind. And um, to attempt to create a society in which everything is nice and we don't have this sort of you know morbid tourism or, or horror films or let's face it, I mean. It's not just the, 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 the scary stuff. It's, you know, if you watch Murder, She Wrote or Columbo or these sorts of, you know, cozy dramas, there's still a corpse involved. Um, we're still drawn to this stuff. And I think it's completely natural. And in the book as well, I, I talk about how it's, it's, it's especially natural for us because we are living in a societies, it's societies in which we are hiding and medicalizing death. And so that's being hidden and corpses, are cut, real corpses are, are vanishing from, or have, well, have vanished from our everyday life. And so naturally we're going to be curious. And so when you see the, the decline in real life death in front of us, you actually ironically see the ascent of its image in the media and in film and in you know zombies. I think that's one of the reasons why zombies are so, uh, are so popular um, because it's literally saying we better not ignore this topic of death and let's bring it back into our home. Uh, 
they'll come back. So in chapter eight of your book, um, so Dead Time Stories, you talk about current psychological theories that show how horror and the macabre can help people who've experienced real trauma to come to to deal with that and to process it. So can we talk Mm -hmm. about that a little bit and some of the ways that horror can be therapeutic? Absolutely. Um, I, I think horror is definitely ther- it's, it's definitely therapeutic for me um, because well actually I, I won't get into that for a second. I'll, I'll give a, a background to the the theory. Um, a good example would be this: um, in the weeks and the months after nine eleven in two thousand and one, parents and teachers started to observe children doing what was really quite disturbing actions. They were relatives and friends had been killed in the in in the, the twin towers, particularly. Um, but these kids who'd lost loved ones were were observed like drawing graphic pictures of burning buildings with their crayons. They were even building Lego airplanes and smashing them repeatedly in the Lego towers that they built. Wow. Now. Parents were looking at this and were horrified. Yeah, or, or or carers were thinking, "What what the heck's wrong with these kids? Um, don't do that. Don't repeat it." And they were doing it repetitively, over and over again, and often without any emotion when they did it. They weren't crying. They weren't laughing. Um, and so the, the worry was they're trivializing a terrible event, or worse, finding it kind of entertaining. And some of the parents and or carers started to suggest that the kids stop doing this sort of activity because clearly it's sick and wrong in their minds. However, um, some child psychologists stepped in and said, do not do that. You, you, this, these, these kids are not trivializing the terror attacks. They are actually trying to deal with their fears in a way that they can handle and control. And so what can happen is if you go through a scenario like the Twin Towers or any tragedy that you might experience, your life is thrown into utter chaos. And it's a terrifying moment for you where the world is suddenly an unpredictable place. What could you, your options are, well, okay, let's act as if that didn't happen. That's not really an option for most people. Most thinking people want to engage with their trauma. And, but you, you need to do it in a way you can handle. And so these kids were engaging with this by turning it into a predictable game um, or a predictable way of being in, in control of it or mastering it. There's a, a case in the book I talk about where a little kid was attacked by a panther or something in a pet shop. That was pretty wild. And um, he, <laughs> the way he kind of um, responded to this after he got bitten by this and his dad got attacked too, um, was in therapy, he would recreate that moment. He would pretend to be the panther and, th- and he would attack the therapist. And people might go, Craigie, what's wrong with this kid? This is not healthy. But this kid's going like, no, I need someone to understand what it's like to be attacked by a panther. And I needed to do it over and over again. And eventually these kids started to to get some sort of release because they took the, the trauma and they put it into ways that they could handle. And I think that's what we do as a society with, with, with true crime and horror and thrillers and everything, that we're taking that which scares us mm-hmm. and we're putting it into patterns that's what they call it genre, you know, it's like generic um, patterns that we can recognize. The car breaks down in front of the house. It's raining. They go in. The, so lots of people get attacked. One person survives. It's it's therapeutic because it's helping us deal with our very real fears of death. And that is certainly what I that's certainly one of the reasons I am drawn to the macabre. That's why I write novels that involve a lot of killing um, and death. It's because it helps me with my own fears, puts them into kind of my control. 
Yeah, that's certainly an interesting theory, and it does make a lot of sense. Nice. Oh. You know what, though? You, you, what you just said reminds me. You've got this series called Matt Hunter, which you've written. Oh, yes. It's about a, a former minister turned sociologist turned crime oh. consultant. Uh, yeah. I, I haven't read them, but they sound really interesting. Uh, do you have more in that series coming out? Yeah, I'm currently writing the fourth uh, one of those. Uh, that's called Possessed. That explores demonic possession. And, um, yeah, that, that comes out early next year. So I'm just finishing that off. So there's four in the series. Um, but, that, yeah, the, the main character is um, – uh, I mean, this is this is published in Britain and uh, it's published in Germany by a different publisher. I, I can't I – would. Yeah, it's not like self-published, but you buy them in normal shops. Those so, is it called Matt Jaeger in in, in Germany? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like Von Hunter or something. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but but he's an he's an atheist. So, like the character is an atheist, and he's 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 uber skeptical about everything. Um, and so, for him, he has he used to be a church minister, but you know, in the first book, we discover why he has turned off Christianity. And quite understandably, and so he is spending his time kind of trying to debunk the Christian faith. Um, but also, he just happens to have all of this knowledge of Christianity and religion and theology. And so, if ever a body turns up that has sort of weird sort of religious symbols carved into it or whatever, he gets called in to help. But he is this. Actually, this is what we you know what we talked about before when I said sometimes I'm so paranoid about people thinking I'm trying to convert them. And so when I was came up with this character of Matt Hunter, I'm like, there's no way I'm making this guy a Christian. Um, I want to make him the opposite. Like I want him to hate Christians. And so <laughs> I've had I've had Christians come in and read the first novel and say, "What the heck are you doing? The, all the Christians in your books are psychopaths, and the only." rational nice people are the skeptics and i'm like well actually you know that sometimes is a good reflection of the world <laughs> <laughs> well it, 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 it reminds me of a pet peeve of mine which is that uh whenever there's a crime if they search the house of the killer or the suspect and they find a uh, uh, any kind of book or, you know, Dungeons and Dragons book or an occult book. They're like, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, it's an occult killing. Yeah. But if if, the, uh -huh. if if it happens in a house with a Bible, they never say, well, it was a Christian killing. You know, that just never comes yeah, yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I mean, like, spookily enough, I mean, the, the first book, Purged, uh, I'm not giving anything away, by the way, because it's the first, it's in the first chapter, but that's about a Christian serial killer who thinks it's the most kindest way of doing evangelism is to um, baptize people and then immediately murder them soon after. Yeah, you just don't let so, them back up, right? You just... It's efficiency <laughs> is what it is. It's efficiency, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. But, but the worry is, the worry is, and I've heard this in Christian circles, like, oh, so-and-so got baptized, but what happens if the world like sucks them back into their way of thinking and they backslide and they lose their faith and therefore their place in heaven? And so this murderer says, well, hey, you know, I'll just kill them. And um, they'll fast track to heaven and I'm, I'm the world's best evangelist, you know? Um, uh, but ironically, like just just uh, I think it was a few months ago, I read in America that uh, a guy, a Christian had done that, try, attempted to do that to his family. I, I really hope he didn't read my book, but it, it attempted to, to drown them, to baptize them and drown them, to, to send them to heaven. So you're right. There are there are plenty of um, crazy Christians. Well, there's plenty of this crazy humans. No, it's rational humans. humans. Right. Crazy right. humans. And I on, think it's um. I think it's certainly a stereotype, though, amongst a lot of uh, atheists that uh, the it's it's always the Catholic priest that's the pedophile. It's always the the yeah. um, church elder who turns out to be the serial killer. That kind of thing. 
Yeah, no, that's that, that's right. I mean, human beings, we, we live on stereotypes. And sometimes that's kind of natural um, in the sense that it's, it's a way of navigating the world. And you kind of sure. want to fast, fast track yourself through things. And you can't, you, you wouldn't really get get through life that much if you were constantly thinking about every nuance of every other person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Something that everyone knows, even if it's yeah. not true. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I read an interesting book recently by a Franciscan priest called Richard Raw, and um, he talks about life being like in two stages. And he says the first half of our lives, and this isn't necessarily reflected in time, um, but he says the first half of our lives before we start to experience real life, really, it, it, we think in black and white. Um, and we, we need to think in those sorts of ways. And so, yes, we say, well, all other religions are false or um, the Bible is absolutely literally true or whatever. Um, but then, actually, as you live your life, you're presented with more data, which challenges that original view. You maybe work alongside a Muslim guy at, church, at, at school, at work, and you go, you know, he's actually a pretty decent fella. Um, or you know an atheist at, uh, down at the pub, and you think, that guy is absolutely lovely. You know, you can't mm-hmm. fault that guy morally. Mm-hmm. And, and this challenges your worldview. Um, and so, therefore, as you get older – many people just start to think slightly more gray. They start to be willing to see life as a mystery. I'm not really sure what the answers are. For some people, they'll go, oh, crap, I'm, I'm losing my faith because I'm not 100% solid. But Richard Raw's point is, no, that's not the case. You're actually becoming more mature because you're starting to recognize the limits of your own knowledge. And so you should embrace that doubt in a way because it's making you a more realistic person in a sense. Because, you know, the idea of everyone having the answer locked down. So, yeah, so I think we do live in stereotypes. But hopefully as we grow older, we start to see people as more in more than one dimension. One would hope so. I, I, there's, there's, I'll, I'll let you go get Karen and then I, I – but you just reminded me of something. Go ahead. Go, Karen. Oh, I was just 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 thinking in terms of uh, some members of my family, and as they age, they seem to be more stuck in their ways. And uh, I feel like yes. I'm, it you know, and again, that's a stereotype too that that people you know get fixed in their their thinking and more rigid yeah. as yeah. they get older. But uh, yeah, I, I certainly think I'm at that point yeah. where I'm trying to to challenge those stereotypes. Whereas I'm mm. seeing, unfortunately, uh, members of my family who were once on the same page as me are yes. now becoming uh, very bigoted and, yeah, and uh, just fixed in their perspectives. Yeah. Well, Richard Raw does point that out. He says that um, actually, ironically, you can get people who are in their 70s, let's say, and they are still immature in the sense that they are still clinging to the pure black and white thinking that everything else must be wrong. And then you yeah. can get you can get a teenager who, let's say, has, you know, been has got cancer, let's say, and is in a hospital and has been forced to experience life in, in, in a sort of fast track way and they are straight to maturity in the sense that they're like oh you know what life is harsh and yes. hard yeah yeah. Um, yeah i'm also seeing a behavior in my four-year-old that i see in in my relatives in this yeah yes well it, it reminds me of you know it, people love simple answers and and ha- mm-hmm. you know if you imagine that if you say well you're a left winger you're a right winger you're this or you're that you it gives you a really simple handle for categorizing that one person but i think if yeah. you looked at the controls or like if you looked at the gauges for a human we're much more like a 747 dashboard than a 19 19- 25 Ford or whatever, you know, and, and uh, yeah. but, but it does remind well, I, me of a, a brilliant insight I had once. It's the, 
there, there's two kinds of people in this world, those that recognize there's two kinds of people in this world, and those that are heretics and must die. So we <laughs> <laughs> <you> have it. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think there, there will be people out there, you know, who, um, yeah, they, they are threatened by grayness. Yes. And so that, because, oh, yes. you know, and it's, it's scary. It's, it, and so, yeah, if you've got that creative sort of personality who gets excited by the blank page, then, um, yeah, that, that's fine. But I think I'm trying to learn that those people who are more locked down in their thinking, um, they do have different ways of viewing life. And they might come from the same sorts of insecurities that I have. Um, mm-hmm. They just express it in a different way. Sure. Well, you mentioned Colombo earlier, so it seems like a, a good time to wrap up and, and say, "Yeah." Oh, I've just got one more question for you. <laughs> What's your favorite yeah. monster? <laughs> oh, my favorite monster. I, I, you know, I would say um, the werewolf. Mm. I, I love the werewolf. Yeah. After Blake's own heart. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. I think I think you know one of the reasons I love werewolves is because they they kind of lack the pretentiousness of vampires. I think vampires are cool <laughs> and great, but there's something like attractive about being a vampire. There's also you can fuse being a vampire with your daily life. You kind of um, you could use being a vampire to your advantage. I think what I like about werewolves and what I find scary about werewolves is. Um, that the, they, they feel more like insanity to me. The the idea that you have these moments where you do things which are totally off the scale and then you kind of wake up the next day. This is the sort of classic werewolf image. Wake up the next day, not sure what you did last night. Um, that to me kind of, I don't know, it, it, it sort of resonates a bit more with the human spirit, whereas a vampire, and I do love vampires like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I did last night. I don't know what I did 30 minutes ago. <laughs> I think I was here. But <laughs> if you're asking me what I would like to be, I don't think I'd like I wouldn't necessarily like I'd rather be a vampire than a than a, than a werewolf cuz um you know that's because of the reasons I've just said, but I think I I find werewolves just that bit more unpredictable, I suppose. But I also like um if I can add another. I do really enjoy um like sort of nature goes mad type monsters, you know, particularly sort of films, 70s films in particular, when uh, there was a big spate of films where, you know, wasps and bees and, and dogs and, uh, you know, rabbits and everything oh, yeah. was out to us. Night of the Leafus, Food of the Gods, uh, Grizzly, yeah, like Prophecy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I love all of those, you know, nature has turned on us, um, that type of stuff. So those sorts of monsters are cool too. I wonder if it, would you put Ben and uh, Willard into that category? Uh, oh, I don't, I don't know because I suppose that that that's more of a kind of urban, as, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, like that's a kind of like a psychopath guy who's using rats as a tool. Um, but because I, as I recall, I don't think the rat do the, the rats don't turn him bad, do they? No, no. He or just, he just seems kind of he seems damaged in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I I did enjoy those films, but I think I'm talking about like the idea that like all of a sudden all dogs in the world start ripping people's throats out. Right, like, right, yeah. <laughs> you're like, what's going on? Um, that, and and I, I was like, um, I, I I'm not a fan of insects, right? I'll tell you that now. I, I find them yeah. disturbing, and um, they freak me out. And um, so films like uh, The Swarm 
uh, for example, watching that when I was a kid. I mean, it's a pretty Empire of the film. Ants. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff. It yeah. creeps me out, but I still want to watch it. I remember, I don't know if you remember The Swarm, Train by wreck. the way. It's a 70s film. <laughs> and at the end of, did you see, at the end of The Swarm, the one with Michael Caine in it, there's this little placard that comes up at the end which says something like, um, the, the, the bees depicted in The Swarm um, are the uh, are based on the Africanized honeybee. Yeah, yeah. They have, they have nothing to do with the industrious, hardworking American bee. <laughs> <laughs> It's hilarious. Well, we're we're planning to cover in search of soon, and in one of the in the season one, they yeah. talked about that. I remember I grew up in the seventies, so the Africanized honeybees was like on the news, and they were invading, yeah. and 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 I, I never really saw them show up in Georgia. Maybe they did, but I tell you what did show up in Georgia that sort of met the hype was uh, the fire ant, and uh, they're everywhere Ooh. now, and I hate them. And if you're a rancher and have cattle or something like that, then uh, they could be quite a mess because. Uh, if a cow steps into it, you know, it just gets really damaged by all the stings. They're horrible. And I guess they're really hard to kill. Um, it, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, not without really messing up the environment. I think there's, you can yeah. go around and sort of treat them nest by nest, but, uh, they're here. They're, they're, they don't really have any predators as far as I know. You can just introduce something else to get rid of them. Yes. Yes. That works really yeah. well in Australia. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cane toads. Oh my gosh. It's like, Australia is like the world's, the world's that, worst, uh, ecosystem experiments. <laughs> like yeah. Still ongoing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> more, more further episodes. Oh my yes. gosh! Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Peter. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh yes, it's thank you, fun. Peter. This has been a lot of fun. It has. Yeah, thank you for uh, chatting to me. It's um, I'm always up for talking about these these topics. Yeah, and uh, we'll put links to your book, The Frighteners, which I loved, and thank you. Uh, and then we'll put links to your author's page if you want to buy the Matt Hunter series or anything else you're working on. Wonderful. And to your YouTube page. Yeah. And, yeah. So yeah, I think uh, awesome. People will be able to get the whole Peter Laws experience. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to join the congregation then on Twitter. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Reverend Peter Laws, who, in addition to being a horror-loving minister, is also the author of a series of thrilling novels that deal with these kinds of themes. A link to his book, The Frighteners, and to his author page will be in the show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones, and we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you again for listening.
let me guess. You have to get these ashes to consecrated ground in order to destroy the forces of evil. Under no circumstances must these ashes ever be released. No idea what you've just done. This has been a Monster House presentation.